morning. So the election is tomorrow, the municipal election, the third and most boring order of Canadian government, <laughs> even though it's the one that arguably has the most impact on our daily lives, if not our imaginations. But if municipal is the most boring, surely the election of school board trustees is the boringest of all. Well, that may have been the case in the past. I can say with a fair amount of confidence that never before have I looked up the campaign website of a school trustee candidate. And maybe it's just my coming of age, but this year definitely feels different. The school board race in Waterloo Region has been making national headlines. The Globe and Mail, for example, published a piece last week entitled, Why a Waterloo, Ontario School Board has emerged as a battleground for ideological politics. It's certainly taken over my Twitter feed for weeks already, with angry posts back and forth from certain candidates who think the WRDSB is being run by ideological authoritarians, and others who insist that, no, those candidates are the real ideologues. Many of you will be all too familiar with the outlines of this dispute, and it may be quite an emotional and triggering issue for some here more personally involved in the school board. So forgive me for rehearsing just a couple of the details this morning for those unfamiliar. There are two events or moments in the history of this dispute that stand out in my own understanding. One is the WRDSB meeting back in January when the chair, Scott Piedkowski, stopped a presenter in the middle of her delegation for what he saw as a violation of the Human Rights Code. The delegation was basically about certain books in WRDSB libraries that contain material about gender and transgender issues that the presenter thought were age inappropriate for elementary school students. Her presentation was interrupted for using language that the chair believed was discriminatory against transgender kids. And while the board voted to uphold the chair's decision, it was a very close vote. And the delegation and those trustees who voted against the chair were quite upset. That presenter proceeded to rally people behind her and her group starting a YouTube channel and a GoFundMe page, claiming that the chair abused his privilege as a white male to shut down any views which question what she calls indoctrination by the school board, indoctrinating kids about gender and race issues. The larger context of that January meeting can be glimpsed through a second 
event or historical moment. And this was a video put out by, yes, Jordan Peterson this past March. In that video, Peterson rails against our Kitchener MPP, Laura May Lindo, and a bill she sponsored in Parliament, Bill 67, the Racial Equity in the Education System Act. It's a bill that amends several previous education acts to require that teachers and board members undergo anti-racism training. And it gives teachers several tools to deal with racism in the classroom. For Peterson, quote, Bill 67, which purports to be nothing but an anti-racist bill, is in fact the most pernicious and dangerous piece of legislation that any Canadian government has attempted to put forward. Why? Because it will, quote, mandate the creation of institutions of inquisition in every educational institution to which anyone who has an opinion or undertakes an action that is perceived to violate the tenets of critical theory will be made necessarily subject to punishment, end quote. In other words, while the bill purports to want to punish racists, what it's really doing is punishing anyone who questions the theory that there is currently systemic inequality and systemic racism happening in our schools. Lindo and others, if I might speak for them, would say that the evidence of systemic racism in our schools and other institutions is more than clear. And to call that into question at this point is in fact to do further harm to impacted minority groups. It furthers a racist status quo and therefore is in fact a form of racism. Peterson, who calls Lindo an authoritarian ideologue, insists that systemic racism is just a theory, a postmodern and Marxist theory, in fact, and thinks that teaching it in schools where kids don't know any better amounts to Marxist indoctrination. Peterson is also invoked in discussions around gender arguing that although there are some marginal aspects of gender that can be considered socially constructed, there is a natural or universal order of male and female, a hierarchical order, where females are by nature subservient to the stronger male. And this order is being disrupted in classrooms which expose kids to more let's say, current gender literature. Again, this literature is indoctrinating kids, he says. And he urges parents to strategize, to band together, to disrupt school boards from continuing with this kind of sex ed. His videos have certainly contributed to the moral panic we're seeing in this election race with some candidates and parents thinking this is their last chance to save society from activist Marxist views. 
What is often let, left out of the conversation is that our school, school curriculums are decided at a provincial level. Municipal boards can't simply modify or override this. And Laura May Lindo's bill has passed two readings in Parliament with near universal support of all parties. So where am I going with this? Why am I dra uh, dragging these bitter disputes into the sacred space of our sanctuary here at Rockway? I'm not here to defend Pietkowski in stopping that delegation or rave about Laura May Lindo, who I would definitely support if she ever tossed her hat into the Ontario NDP leadership race. I'm not here to try to get you on my woke left side. Because frankly, my own understanding is neither exhaustive nor altogether free from self-contradiction. What made me want to drag this dispute into church is that church has been dragged into it. In a record article last weekend, a trustee candidate from Wellesley was quoted as saying, as a Christian, I am dismayed by the direction the board is taking, how it is conducting its business and the damage being done to children in the schools as a result of these ideologies. As a Christian, he says, thus assuming the role of speaking for all Christians, myself included. The record article doesn't mention that Smith is a member of, uh, sorry, the record article doesn't editorialize this, doesn't say what kind of Christian that this trustee is. Fails, in fact, to mention that Smith is a member of Trinity Bible Chapel, the infamous church that was fined and eventually had to be shut down by the police after failing to close its doors during lockdown. As a Christian, the quote continues, Smith said he believes there is an intentional effort to erode parental authority and he will seek to uphold and protect it as much as he can. I am very concerned about the focus on identity ideologies, including transgenderist and critical theory, commonly known as anti-racism instruction, he said. I am also opposed to and concerned about the promotion of sexual practices and identities that do not conform to the biblically defined limits of heterosexual marriage. So maybe I'm preaching to the choir here, and since we mostly just sing as a congregation, I suppose I am literally preaching to the choir, but I'm sorry, I. I do get defensive when Christianity is presented as one thing that all Christians believe in, especially when that thing is a set of conservative slogans. For all its colonial and hegemonic history, one thing Christianity is not is one thing. And of course we can just roll our eyes and be like, yep, the conservatives, but 
sometimes keeping quiet about these things or just assuming we all know isn't helpful. It can actually let the belief persist that his Christianity is indeed the conservative or traditional Christianity, whereas more progressive forms are the ones changing with the times, bending to incorporate Marxist social constructivist theories or whatever. But although we might call him conservative, I believe that my Christianity is just as rooted in the biblical tradition and the history of the church as his is, if not more. So let's do it. Let's look at some of these slogans. So first, as a Christian, Smith is worried about eroding parental authority, and he's seeking to protect it. Is parental authority a self-evident Christian truth? It's certainly one of the Ten Commandments. Honor thy father and thy mother, etc. But as much as I wish my own kids would cleave to that one a little bit more, there are certainly some New Testament verses that nuance that commandment a little bit. Take Luke 14, 26, for example. Now large crowds were traveling with him, and Jesus turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself cannot be my disciple. Or in Matthew's version, for I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and one's foes will be members of one's own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And of course, we also have Matthew 12, when Jesus was told that his mother and brothers were waiting to speak with him, and he replies, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The Jesus I know, the biblical Jesus, was not exactly a family man. There's something more going on here than Smith's family values. But what about the transgenderist ideologies? What about the, quote, promotion of sexual practices and identities that do not conform to the biblically defined limits of heterosexual marriage? I confess I'm not totally sure what these biblically defined limits are. It's possible I learned about them from Scott in our sessions with him before our marriage. <laughs> but if so, I've forgotten. So, uh, nor did I go to great lengths this week to look up possible uh, Bible sources for this. I do remember that Jesus wasn't married, unless we're getting our gospel from the Da Vinci Code. 
I also remember that from very early on and continuing throughout the Middle Ages and beyond, devoted Christians thought that to truly follow Christ was to live celibate, ascetic lives alone in the desert or in ascetic communities, in monasteries. These aren't exactly the model of the nuclear family, of single family homes. But what then about the issue of transgenderism? It's not like they believed back then that gender is a social construct. I mean, even if they were living celibate lives, these monks didn't question that they were males by nature or whatever, right? Well, in this case, I'm preaching to a very specific choir, a choir that just sang the hymn in Christ, there is no east or west. It's a hymn based on the verse from Paul's letter to the Galatians we heard earlier, Galatians 3.28. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. What does this verse mean? For the Cappadocian fathers, this verse encapsulates what it means to be truly human. The Cappadocians were three fourth century theologians, two brothers, St. Basil and Gregory of Nyssa, and a good friend of theirs, Gregory of Nazianzus, who together became known as fathers of the church, like Augustine and St. Jerome because they were so influential in the formation of Christian doctrine. There are technically no mothers of the church, but if there were, Basil and Gregory's older sister, Macrina, would certainly be among them. The brothers both proclaimed the influence that Macrina had on them. Gregory even wrote a biography of her in which he credits her with his deepest theological insights. Macrina and Basil together set up a number of monastic communities which took Galatians 3.28 as a guiding principle. Where Hellenistic society had strong divisions and hierarchical roles for men and women, kind of like Jordan Peterson's ideal society. These communities were founded on the idea that in Christ, societal roles and hierarchies which seemed natural have been transcended. Cultures, classes, even genders are wiped clean in baptism, in the Eucharist, and the taking of monastic vows. Gregory of Nyssa clarifies that what Paul is indicating in this verse is the fact that Jesus Christ himself in the resurrection is no longer male or female. When they appear as male to the disciples afterward, they are just letting the disciples see them as male for the sake of communication. They have become like an angel. They have become, in fact, what human beings were originally conceived as in God's mind when we were made in the image of God. 
Gregory says that the divisions of male and female are features of a fallen world, a way of seeing each other based more on ignorance than who we really are. Christ has transcended that ignorance, and we are made in Christ's image. And in our participation in Christ, in baptism, and in the bread and wine of communion, we are able to transcend these social divisions as well and become our true nature. I find this Christology and this understanding of human nature very powerful and iconoclastic. But once again, I'm not saying that it's one we all need to necessarily adopt. Saying that gender distinctions are social constructions like being Greek or Jewish or slave or, f or free, that can be liberating for some, but it can also be a form of erasure, denying an important feature of many people's self-understanding and identity, including trans people. It's similar to the erasure of black people's experience and oppression in the claim to be colorblind. But it is a Christology with biblical roots and a long history, from the Cappadocians to Maximus to Eriugena and beyond. Christian tradition, like Christians themselves, takes many forms, forms which persist, forms which change, forms which oppress, and forms which liberate. As a human, I know that my understanding is limited but as a Christian, I am committed to doing the work to continually update my understanding of Christ as I read and as I follow. I seek to be open to God's will and to the suffering of others. Lord, have mercy. Amen. <laughs>